in three and two and one. Hi, everybody. This is Tim Anderson, the Appraiser's Advocate, and we call this one the Appraiser's SWAT Team with Craig Morley. We feature another interview with Craig as he takes on the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats facing appraisers today. Craig, how are you? I'm doing so well, Tim. Thank you for letting me uh, visit. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Let me ask you a couple of quick questions here. You've been appraising since the 80s, correct? That's correct, yes. And most of that has been in Utah, Arizona, and Nevada, right? That's correct, yes. Okay, all right. So you were eight years on the Utah board, four years its chair. That's right. Okay, so you've got a lot of experience there. You, you've you listened to a lot of appraisers give you a lot of excuses. So we're, we're going to touch on that today in, in just a few minutes. In addition to those experiences, you're also the president of the National Association of Appraisers this year. That's correct, yeah. And you've been on its board of directors for many years, true? That's right. And then, in addition, you also serve as the chair of NAR's uh, appraisal section this year. Yes, uh, chair of the Real Property Valuation Committee under the National Association of Realtors. We set that precedent for a purpose. The, the purpose is so that everybody knows you have a basic clue about what's going on. As, as we talk today, the, the questions I'm going to ask and the answers to, you're going to provide come from a position of authority and experience and knowing what's going on. Craig, you and I have spoken uh, offline about uh, various topics. So basically, uh, Craig, you're talking now to members of NAA. You're talking now to those who aren't members of NAA but might be in the future. You're talking to just appraisals in general. So what is it right now that floats your boat, as it were? What is it that pleases you? What is it that worries you? What is it that frustrates you? Just go ahead and talk to us. The appraisal profession has evolved over time. It, you know, the principles and the development process has pretty much remained the same. But as time has gone on, the technology has changed the way I think most appraisers are doing business. The thing that I see where I'm at is that we have some great opportunities. We've got some real concerns about where we may be going in the future. So as, as we talk today, maybe we can you know look at some of the strengths and weaknesses, opportunities and threats that, that affect us as appraisers, both at a day-to-day appraise, you know, level where we're appraising real estate, as well as a broader-based profession as where we're going and how do we meet, remain relevant. So first of all, Craig, let's talk about the strengths. What strengths do appraisers present? What strengths does the appraisal profession present now for its clients? A qualified appraiser has a level of uh, understanding of markets that y- your real estate agents, your loan officers, market participants simply don't have. And, you know, as an appraiser, you will often see thousands of transactions that will transpire within the course of a year with the subject properties that are being appraised, with the properties that are being sold. And if we're doing our job, we're analyzing these transactions in an effort to try to 
understand the motivations that make these transactions work, we bring that human factor into the analysis that is just pretty tough to find anyplace else. We've got the advantage of studying very possibly hundreds of sales a year. So not only are we looking at individual transactions, but then we're looking at those individual transactions in how they make a market. Is that correct? Yes, yes. Uh, you know, and in fact, in appraisal theory, what we really do is we're, we look at a sale transaction. We try to determine if it's an arm's length transaction or not, where the motivation of the buyers and the sellers, things that took place that represent that total price. Then we look and say, okay, we've got the underlying land. We've got land that is kind of the basis upon which the improvements are located. And if we have an understanding of how much the contributory value of the land was in that transaction, the only thing that's left is the contribution value of the improvements. And so if we have a transaction that takes place and we say, okay, it sold for $500,000 and 200000 of it was the land, you know that there are 300000 that's left over are improvements or other kinds of value that are in beyond the land. And it puts us in a position then for us to be able to analyze the contributory nature of the improvements so that we can best provide our clients with the way that markets are responding to various kinds of improvements that are situated on land. Now, you, you've mentioned analytics quite a bit, analysis. Now, from, from that standpoint of analysis, from the, from the analytics that appraisers go through to form a, a value conclusion, do you think that, by and large, appraisers are engaging in the depth of analysis they should be to form an objective value opinion, or is there some subjectivity sneaking in there? I think that there is a level of subjectivity that comes into it simply by the nature uh, that we're mortal. We have things that affect, you know, emotions and biases and things that kind of affect what we do, even though we're supposed to be an objective, disinterested third party. It's pretty hard to completely remove that from the, uh, you know, from the equation. But at the same time, I think that we need to make sure that our skill set is honed in such a way that we can see the trends and, and the kinds of value that the analytics can bring to the table so that we can filter out some of the uh, issues that may ar arise in a transaction that don't make sense. And we are best able to do that as we are able to bring both the uh, human qualities that we individually have coupled with the uh, experience and, and ability to analyze some of these uh, transactions and provide our clients with the most reliable results possible. Okay, so you've spoken about strengths. And given what you've said, you've said that one of the appraiser's greatest strengths is the ability to engage in analytics objectively. Let's take that as given. Let's take that as, as true. What opportunities, what benefits do those attributes that we appraisers have present to our clients? You know, a while back, I was appraising a self-storage uh, facility. As I'm looking at the site plan and the way that the units are laid out, they had this designed so that 
you could park your boats and your motorhomes into this thing, but the layout was such that I could see no practical way that you could back a boat or a motorhome into some of these because of kind of an odd angle that they had these units lined up on. So I called the client. I said, listen, I think we might have a problem with some functionality, some functional obsolescence in this project because of the way it's done. And the engineer, you know, that they kind of pride themselves as being completely analytical, uh, says, well, the computer says you should be able to do it. And I kind of laughed and said, well, as long as the computer is driving the car, it might be able to work. But if my wife is driving the car, you're going to be tearing, you're going to be replacing those uh, doors and, and side posts to the doors every week because there is not a practical way that anybody's going to be able to get in there without causing problems. And and I use that as an illustration that people buy houses, they buy commercial real estate, they buy things. And when, when I'm looking solely at analytics and, and forget that people are the ones that make these decisions, that it puts us in a position where we are better at being able to analyze some of these things than what a computer is. And some of the biggest challenges that we face is trying to measure things like view and location and quality and condition. And while while we can develop tools that help us to measure those things, at their very core, it requires a level of expertise and experience that it's just pretty hard to get from uh, some kind of a uh, model that uh, we try to build using statistics or other means. So basically what you're saying is, well, an AVM not only may be relatively fast, and it will spit out a result that will tell the potential client something. Because all it does is analytics, that is the human side that AVMs just can't provide. Is that right? That, that's right. In fact, I had an assignment the other day. Pretty nice uh, home. The problem with this particular property was it had a steep driveway with kind of a hair in turn to get your car in the garage. The agent had called and asked me to come and appraise the property. The seller had seen some of the homes in the neighborhood, had seen their Zillow estimate, and they're convinced that this property is worth more based on some of those kinds of things. And as, as you come in and look at this and you say, you know what, there's not an easy cost to cure. There's not an easy way to fix the problem. And this is going to be an issue for many buyers. And you go through and develop, you know, look at some of these other issues that uh, similar situations have occurred and try to apply a solution. In the end, uh, the property sold for significantly less than what the owner had originally hoped for and and less than what some of these other homes had sold for. The beauty with that now is that uh, as we look at other properties down the road that have similar circumstances, it gives us a case study that we can use to help model and advise people on the impacts of some of these things. And because we don't have large quantities of that kind of data that you can put into a computer model, uh, it, it kind of relies upon the judgment and experience of uh, some of these transactions that take place that we can then use to help advise people as to the impact of some of these kinds of conditions. So while a, a mathematical model might have come up with a number for that house, what you're saying is there's absolutely no way that mathematical model could have accounted for the problem of the steep driveway with the hairpin turn to get in the garage. Only an appraiser could do that. Is that what you mean? Yeah, I think that... 
appraiser can look at that and say, you know what, this is a problem. And and the interestingly, the agent uh, who had the listing had shown the property to multiple buyers because on paper it looked pretty good. But when they get there and look at it, it's like, ah, gee, I just this is a no go for me. I can't I, I can't live with this. And I think that we are in a pretty good position if if we will take the time to analyze the characteristics of some of these properties to help measure the impact of some of these circumstances that may exist. So it took a boots-on-the-ground appraiser not only to recognize the problem, but then qualify the problem and then quantify the problem. Is that correct? That's exactly right. Now, we've talked about strengths and we've talked about opportunities that uh, appraisers present that you just can't get from AVMs and BPOs and, and, and stuff like that. Let's talk about some weaknesses. Obviously, uh, we're not uh, supermen and women. We've got our human liabilities, etc. So what are the weaknesses, Craig, that you see appraisers have or you see facing appraisers? And given your background, experience, training, education, etc., how do you see us overcoming them? What do we have to do to overcome them? And indeed, are they cap- Are we capable of overcoming overcoming them. I think that there's a number of uh, weaknesses that we have that we can overcome. There are some things that we may not be able to overcome, but that, that arise from emerging technologies that you know, we, we just have to learn how to find the relevance where we make up the gaps where the technology is better than we are, then we have to face that. Where we're better than the technology, we need to leverage that and use it in such a way that we can use technology to our advantage so that we are able to be the most qualified people to use the technology and come up with the most reliable assignment results. That is kind of the weakness that we turn into a strength. The bigger weakness is too often many appraisers have developed their process for doing appraisals and we don't take the time to improve our skill set. Far too often, and you'd mentioned uh, having been served on an appraisal board and in, in Utah the way that the appraisal experience review was done is that the division staff would pick four appraisals, and and invariably, they would pick the four worst appraisals that anybody had ever done for experience review. They would send it out to an experience review committee, and that committee would look at the appraisals and then say, yeah, I think this demonstrates competency and experience that uh, they can go take the test and get their license, or no, we've got some concerns here that need to be addressed. Most often, what would happen is when that experience was denied, the applicant had the opportunity to go before the board and explain themselves. And oftentimes, the the board would allow them to go ahead and proceed. It was always kind of interesting because uh, they would always try to find like a small income property as a for experience for a duplex or a fourplex or something like that. And it was, we would always ask, so tell me a little bit about your gross rent multiplier. Because what you could tell is if the person had any kind of training, they kind of understood the basics on some of this. It's pretty basic income concept. But, you know, when they would start talking about taking the sales price and dividing it by the square foot to come up with their income multiplier, we had a pretty good sense that they didn't fully comprehend what they were doing there. The biggest thing that we would oftentimes find is say, so explain to me how you developed your adjustment for the lot size difference or for the above grade living space. Oftentimes, the answer was, well, that's what my trainer told me to use. It became a clue that these appraisers were 
were using data that was anecdotal at best and wasn't based on the market, we had a number of experiences where people would come away from that feeling kind of bad, but having said, you know, I've learned more in this experience review hearing than I've learned to date having taken a class or anything else. And my my concern is, is that uh, we don't take the time we need to better improve our skill set so that we can provide our clients with the most reliable results. Craig, let me wander a little bit into the weeds here. Now, you've talked about these reviews. You've talked about it was clear that appraisers possibly didn't understand the full implications of what they were doing and how they were supposed to do it. Thus, what they provided their, to their clients was of, let's be nice here, of questionable relevance. If you would be so kind, please. Would you tell us what you consider the state of real estate appraisal education, both QE and CE? And if you feel that there are improvements to be made, would you enlighten us? Would you explain to us what you think those changes might need to be in the educational system? The qualifying education, I think, is pretty well developed. The reality is is that under the qualifying education to get your certification or get your credential from the state. It's pretty well dictated. And I think it's probably good in terms of a high-level overview of what you need to understand to become an appraiser. Where I see the breakdown is in the application. We don't do a very good job of the practical application of some of these things. We would sit down and, and you can talk to somebody and it's kind of like the Sunday school answer, you know. So how did you get this developed? Well, I did that by paired sales analysis. And you go, well, okay, show me. Well, that became a little less clear as to exactly how they had applied this paired sales analysis. We've seen people who get their hands on some cool little uh, statistical tool and they go apply it and come up with some crazy results and they don't understand what a correlation coefficient is. They don't understand if their model's any good and so they start applying these things without no, without having a real understanding. You know, you know finding ways to uh, help people come up with reasonable, thoughtful ways to support the adjustments they make and develop their adjustments, I think, is, is still an area that needs a lot of improvement. So you, you mentioned support for the adjustment. So support is just not the right answer. Rather, what you're saying is support is the right answer and then support for the right answer. Is that what you're saying? Yes. And, and I think the thing that we find is that there's multiple ways to support your conclusions. Some of the different techniques that we may apply work better in based on the data set that's available to us. When, when everything becomes anecdotal, I, I will oftentimes see in forums or hear people talking, well, I adjust land at $2 a square foot. That might work. But if I don't know where that number came from and the logic on how it was developed, it's a problem. I, I will oftentimes see canned comments. I just reviewed an appraisal where the canned comment on pretty much everything is that I'm adjusting square footage at $40 a square foot. Okay, that might be a reasonable number some of the time, but it won't be a reasonable number all of the time. And if we don't have a way to develop that and explain it to a client in some kind of a meaningful way, then our value as a professional is diminished significantly, I believe. Okay, now let me ask you, uh, we're going to take a side trip here for a second. Let me ask you to put your state appraisal board member's hat on, and if you want to put your chairman's hat on too, that's perfectly fine. So an appraiser is up before you, and you say something along the lines of, where did you get your per square foot adjustment? And the appraiser says, well, I adjust.
adjusted it $40 a square foot. And you say, why did you adjust it $40 per square foot? And the appraiser says, because that's the way I've always done it. And that's what my mentor trained me to do. What are you as a state board member thinking about that? The thing I'm usually thinking is that I wish they would have given a different answer. That answer is not an answer that engenders a lot of confidence and trust in the analysis because oftentimes the thing that we forget is that the market is what tells us what those adjustments should be. And if someone were to go in and say, well, you know what I did is I found a home that was 1,500 square feet and I found one that was 1,800 square feet. And once these other differences, there weren't very many differences, but once they were accounted for, I could see that that marginal difference was at this amount. Then I'm feeling a little more comfortable that they've at least got one method that is reasonable and is something that most people would consider to be a reliable way to develop that adjustment. If they come in and develop some kind of a regression model where they came in and said, listen, this is how I did it. I went and looked at large blocks of data over here and large blocks of data over here. And when I trend this or when I do my analysis, it tells me that the market is is responding in this manner. That's another method that gives me a degree of confidence that they know what they're doing. But anytime I'm looking at some table that a mentor put together that is not necessarily based on the market, I, I worry that uh, we have developed form fillers rather than analysis or people that are capable of performing analysis. So the important part here, if I understand, is not merely the answer that you provide. Rather, it's the answer you provide and the support you have behind the answer, correct? That is. And one, one, of the, one of the things that I find oftentimes is that we think if we don't make an adjustment that I've been relieved of the responsibility of supporting an adjustment. So an adjustment of zero is an adjustment, is it not? I think it is, yeah. And I think that one of the concerns I have and one of the areas that I think is a weakness for, for us as appraisers is that we have two properties that we have now rated as being good quality. One's a little better than the other. And we think, well, I've rated them both as good. I don't want to make an adjustment because I'm going to have some underwriter that's going to come in and question why I made an adjustment for two good quality homes. So we kind of let this stuff go. And now that somebody's unhappy, it, it creates a problem. Our reliability has been compromised and the results are not as credible as they could be. So we're condemned if we do and we're condemned if we don't. All right. Well, Craig, let me uh, ask you a couple more questions. We've talked about strengths. We've talked about weaknesses. We've talked about opportunities. Let's talk about threats now. What are the threats that are facing us as real estate appraisers? Probably the biggest threat that we face is a combination of evolving needs in evaluation. We have, over the years, established, at least in the residential arena, and then in some degree the commercial arena, a one-size-fits-all kind of an appraisal report in the 1004. There's a few others that are out there, but by far and away, that seems to be the most prevalent reporting format that you see for mortgage lending. What we're finding is that that many of the users of appraisers are saying, you know, we've got this one-size-fits-all scope of work and report, and we need to have a few more options. As appraisers, we've been reluctant to embrace some of that. So the result has been the 
markets, you know, the users or those people who need valuation services are saying, I think we're going to increase the threshold for which we need an appraisal, and then we can find some less involved valuation tools to get us to where we want to be. And so we've seen the increase in the de minimis, which has lowered the uh, number of appraisals that need to be done in certain kinds of situations, and they're being done by people who oftentimes aren't appraisers. I see that perpetuation as a threat. I see that as we continue to see that trend take place, that that is a problem for us. The opportunity, you know, to change that threat into an opportunity is for us to diversify our skill set and come up with different reporting formats where the scope of work may be somewhat different that allows the appraiser to participate in that type of valuation service. Okay, so, the, so, so specifically, if you would, what, what do you mean? So if I have a client that says the value in this transaction is not the main issue, we've got a good quality, uh, we, we've got a large down payment, I don't need you to go out and look at every single comparable sale. I don't need a detailed description on some of the things that you might otherwise be providing. Can you come up with something where you are giving me a lower threshold? The reliability won't be as good because I haven't done as much, but it gets me what I need. And if, if we're capable of doing that, then I think it provides a place for us to come up with more of an a la carte kind of service that we can provide for our clients. Now, you mentioned the concept of reliability. Now, that's interesting because USPAP does not use the word reliability in either Standards 1, the Appraisal Development Standard, or Standard 2, the Appraisal uh, Reporting Standard. What do you mean by reliability? I, I thought that our standard, our development standard, was credibility, and our reporting standard was not misleading. Talk to us about reliability. Well, I think the concept of reliability is how much can I rely on the results of this assignment based upon the scope of work? You mean, you mean uh, how much if, can the client can rely on it? Yeah, yeah how much can the client rely upon the uh, results, the, the assignment results based on the scope of work? So if my client just needing kind of a, and I, and I look at it from the perspective of uh, maybe a standard deviation, you know, what, what what's my range? What's the, the, the range that is, is most likely to occur from my analysis? If I'm doing a very thorough job of uh, verifying all of the data, talking to all of the market participants, and if I'm doing a litigation case, I will often be talking to the buyer and the seller and the agents and looking at public record data, looking at MLS data, and doing a more comprehensive overview on that transaction so that I have the best possible understanding of the motivations of the buyers and the sellers and what took place. If I'm doing something for FHA, I may be talking to one of the parties of the transaction trying to collect that along with looking at MLS data and public record data. If I'm doing, uh, I, I might have an assignment where I'm only looking at MLS data and I'm not talking to any of the parties of the transaction. So the level of which the appraiser goes to confirm some of this data may affect the understanding of the transaction, which might influence how the uh, sales are analyzed and affect the reliability of the assignment results based on the uh, level of confirmation that took place in, in collecting some of that. Now, I know for me, I, I oftentimes will look at uh, large blocks of data, and if I find stuff that's an outlier, I oftentimes will kick it out simply because it doesn't make sense in the context of the market. If, if I know I'm going to court, I want to make sure I know the details of that transaction pretty well so that uh, if I'm under cross-examination, I can uh, 
uh, explain the circumstances and explain why or why not those circumstances uh, affected my opinion in some way. So basically what you're saying is the reliability of the appraisal can vary, but no matter whether it's highly reliable or less reliable, it still must be credible in the context of intended use. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, it's still got to be believable. You've got to have employed the appropriate techniques in standard one, and uh, you've got to convey them to your client in standard two. And when I'm in standard two conveying my assignment results, I'm telling them, I looked at the property or I didn't. I looked at the comparable sales or I didn't. And I'm, I'm telling them, these are the things that I did to develop my opinion based on the level of analysis or the level that uh, based on the scope of work is going to affect how reliable those results may be. They can still be credible, but if if I haven't physically looked at the property, there's the possibility that things were not picked up that might be irrelevant characteristics that were missed. Craig, let's talk a little bit about bifurcating the appraisal process. Why do you think so many appraisers get so bent out of shape over the concept of bifurcating the appraisal process? And then is bifurcating the appraisal process a viable step? Or is it something that we should beat to death, throw gasoline on, and burn until it's no longer recognizable? What what should we do? Yes, I agree. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, good. All right, next topic. (laughs) I think the problem we run into is that if I'm a residential appraiser, I've kind of got a a protocol or a process that I go through. And and, and oftentimes, residential appraisers are small one- or two-man shops. And so... This idea of bifurcating is foreign and it creates some concerns about, well, how do I know that the information I've got is reliable? And that's a real concern. And I think that has been the concern all the way through the process. What we see in some of your larger commercial shops, it's common for someone to go out and collect the property data on the property. And because we don't see as much of that in the residential world, that is something that's unaccustomed. And you've got some that want to go in and make it illegal to bifurcate. And you understand the concern. But I think when we look at the bigger picture, we have to realize that the objective is to collect accurate, reliable information. We will see this as being a hot button issue for the next couple of years. Uh, It seems to be that the bifurcated appraisals through Fannie and Freddie, uh, you know, have backed up just a little bit for the time being. I don't know that it's going away, but I doubt that it is. We see states now grappling with, well, how do we deal with this? USPAP is particularly interesting. It's been in there before, but in the 2020-2021 USPAP, it makes it pretty clear that someone who is acting as an appraiser in the capacity of an appraiser, even if they don't have an appraisal license in the state in which the property is located, as far as USPAP is concerned, they are an appraiser. So this has created some real interesting challenges because in a mandatory state like Utah, uh, the Division of Real Estate is saying, well, we're a mandatory state. If you're acting in the capacity of an appraiser because we've adopted USPAP, you are an appraiser. And if you don't have an appraisal credential in the state, you're involved with unlicensed activity. You get other states like New York that are not mandatory 
estate, you don't have to be an appraiser. The problem and one of the fears I have for appraisers is that because USPAP says that those people participating in that part of the process are considered by USPAP to be an appraiser, I have an obligation to recognize their participation in the process as professional appraisal assistants, and I've got to recognize what they've done. So, you know, the FYI is if you're in a non-mandatory state or if you're getting information from, from some third party, you want to recognize them in, in your appraisal for what they've done so that uh, you don't run the risk of having a complaint filed against you. Wow, that's uh, getting kind of complicated, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Craig, well, uh, as, as, the unintended consequences of the policies that we set, I think. Yeah, sometimes we shoot ourselves in the foot, don't we? Uh, Craig, as we wrap this up, you mentioned appraisers uh, expanding what it is they do. In other words, you're talking not you're talking of appraisers not merely just doing appraisals, but getting into other types of related work in order to get away from mortgage work and therefore try to expand their base and, and to use a cliche, not have all their eggs in one basket. What would you recommend appraisers do along these lines? One of the things that we've done is that uh, we have tried to diversify the kinds of services that we can provide. And one one area that has been pretty good for us is doing feasibility studies. An example, we had someone who went and bought a manufactured home in a manufactured home neighborhood that's on a big lot only to tear it down and build a million-dollar home on that site, a home that cost them a million dollars. doesn't mean it was worth that. But the reality is, is that as appraisers, we are very well suited to be able to provide consulting services or feasibility analysis that says, listen, if you are expecting to get your money back on this property, this is not going to work. This is a bad idea. And we have people who want to remodel their homes frequently or they're buying a home and they want to make improvements. We are very qualified to be able to help them say, listen, the market is telling me if I spend more than X number of dollars on this, the likelihood I'm going to get my money back is not very good to be able to sit down with real estate agents or with mortgage lenders before these folks go make a catastrophically bad decision, be able to hire me for an hour or two and to sit down and look and say, listen, this doesn't make sense. This is the nature of this market. I'm not developing an opinion of value, but I might be able to help guide them on some of the things that they can do that will maximize their investment into their properties. And and there's not very many appraisers that take advantage of the opportunity to to provide those kinds of services to their clients. Right. Craig, if somebody wanted to get in touch with you to consult with you or uh, work with you as an instructor or something like that, how would they do that? The, the best email for me is ValuePro. There's no E in value, so it's V-A-L-U-P-R-O at gmail.com. ValuePro and, uh, at gmail.com. Okay. Again, Craig, thank you. I appreciate it very much. We appreciate it very much. And please let me extend my best to you and to your family. Thank you, Craig. Thanks so much. Tim. Thank you for listening to another podcast from the Appraiser's Advocate. This is Tim Anderson. If I can ever be of help to you, please feel free to contact me. Get in touch at tim at theappraisersadvocate.com. It'll be an honor to hear from you. And Craig, one more thank you for your time and your expertise. Thanks so much, Tim. Enjoyed it.